you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity. I'm Ellie Stuhler. Joining us in conversation for the launch episode of Thought Starters from the pod at White City Place, the eminent lighting designer Michael Anastasiades and top design writer, curator, and editor Emily King. Two really exciting guests to get this podcast going. Together, they discuss the hierarchy of copycats, the state of the design press, and the value of talking trends. Michael Anastasiades' playful lighting is most often described as minimalistic and sculptural, often exploring the idea of balance. He started a studio in 1994 and launched his own brand in 2007, and has since become a favorite of lighting superbrand Floss. His work has been acquired into the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the V&A in London, and the Museum of Applied Arts in Vienna. Emily King is a journalist, editor, author, and curator of design, graphics, fashion, and art. She's previously contributed to publications like The Gentlewoman, Freeze, and Apartamento. She was the editor of the Fantastic Man book and co-curated a retrospective on the graphic design work of Richard Hollis, which was shown at the Centre Pompidou in Paris in 2013. They start off on the subject of Salone del Mobile, the furniture industry's most important trade fair hosted in Milan each April, and the biannual Euroluce, a special segment of Salone dedicated just to lighting. First is you you have to consider yourself lucky that you get accepted. Mm -hmm. And then you have to consider yourself lucky that you're actually within the same building as those big companies. Are you talking year by year? So the first day you Year by year, you know, you get uh, better located and you just have to prove yourself. You know, how well have you performed? How much attention did you actually manage to attract? And people talking about your brand. And then if you do it, over and over again, then you can go back and negotiate your location. Mm-hmm. And, you know. It's interesting because as just a sort of casual visitor to Milan, sometimes I even think, mm, shall I bother to go to the main fair? You know, that because there's so many satellite events that if you're just there for sort of entertainment and knowledge, you might even miss the main fair. And it's interesting that that's the central fair so important. It is very important yeah. for business. It is the main magnet. You know, this is actually where all the deals happen, you know. Uh, And mind you, I mean, the first time I entered it, I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. Let's see how many sales we can actually strike after this. And you finish the fair, you spend all this money, and then you realize actually that you didn't make a single confirmed uh, sale out of it. And this is exactly a big realization is that you need to be there, but there's no direct measure as to how it's going to reflect on your business. And it's just a marketing exercise. And you have to be there the next time and again and again because all you're looking is to establish confidence. Do you think there is more press attention to Milan these days? I mean, is that just my impression that there is, that it gets more kind of mainstream coverage that newspapers tend to do in Milan Roundup, which maybe they wouldn't have done 20 years ago? Well, they do, but I think it's always in competition with social media Mm. because, you know, social media tends to attract attention first. People following people and, you know... Do you have social media accounts? Uh, We do. I don't use them that much because I I think that social media accounts need to be personal. And unfortunately, I don't really have the time 
to uh, put into it to make it worthwhile. Do you think a lot of people become aware of your stuff though through Instagram? It is an amazing platform. It is an amazing platform. But then you realize also with uh, designers and big names that it's not them that handle it. Their Mm. social media accounts Mm. is not handled by them personally. Mm -hmm. It's somebody that is employed just to look at the social media. I mean, there's PR companies that specialize in social media. So you just hire them and they Mm. do the whole thing for you. So, you know, they just have like one hour conversations with you every, I don't know how often, and and they just go along and they post things and and they just pretend. And that doesn't feel right to you? It doesn't. You can spot it immediately. It feels so impersonal. It's just uh, nothing. But uh, of course, mind you, there are uh, incredible people out there that actually do bother putting stuff up but you see that more in the sort of art world I would say in design you know people seem to be very few designers actually is the real designer behind you know their account I mean it's interesting with the art world because the art world's meant to be very slow on social media that that's generally said and I think part of the reason the art world is so slow well particularly something like Twitter is that there isn't really kind of news in the art world. The only news mm. is about the market. Yeah. And the market's kind of boring yeah. in the end. You know, yeah. it's sort of vaguely fascinating, but it's not actually yeah. what the art world's about. And so in a sense, it's not really a kind of social media. Though people do Instagram the hell out of pieces of work, I guess. I don't Do you think design is suited to social media in terms of its I would say more. I mean, if this is your observation about the art world, I think the design world is a little bit different. Uh, Maybe it might be a little bit more close to the fashion Mm. Mm. uh, industry, which I would assume is the fastest and most Mm. sort of up to date with with these things. Because I think I first went to Milan, it must have been been the late 90s, Mm -hmm. like 97, 98. And it was really, I mean, I absolutely loved it, partly because, you know, it was kind of quite low-key that if if there was a party, you could just get in because if you were there, sort of almost de facto, you were invited, you know, if you were interested. And then, I mean, I think Established and Sons slightly changed the game. Absolutely, because all of a sudden, everybody wanted to be at the the party, Sons Sons party, which was... Free drinks. And so that was the first, you know, it had that kind of little glitter of celebrity. I mean, I was interested about uh, when you talk about being in the main fair because established never showed in the main fair, did yes. they? They always showed outside. And I wonder if that, do you think that wasn't part of their error is that they didn't treat themselves as a business? They treated themselves as an event or something. Absolutely. And, yeah. and it's interesting to kind of observe how Established and Sons uh, evolved. You know, this whole, I think it was just purely built on hype. You know, it was a company that was you know, built entirely on hype. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of ended with tragedy as well, Establishing Sons. Was it a product of the time or did it actually change things? I mean, what was the pull Absolutely. And push? It did change things, things because yeah. it set the standards mm. um, on a different scale. Mm. You know, it was a new scale that mm. didn't exist before. So mm. everybody was observing this sudden interest and popularity of towards uh, Established and Sons, this new company, you know, all the hip designers Mm. working for them, interesting products, high quality, you know, lots of money, Mm -hmm. everything in abundance, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was directly reflected in every single event Mm -hmm. they would do, you know, they, you could sense that abundance Mm. in everything. And even as a designer at the time, before becoming an exhibitor, it was always, you know, the place to go and the party to 
And do you think that's when maybe the press started paying more attention to Mayan? Absolutely, absolutely, because the model suddenly changed. But I think the big established companies uh, that had been around for a long time, they just, you know, observed this model quietly from a distance Mm -hmm. because probably they realized that it was a little bit artificial. So with Fashion Week, it used to be the case that the clothes that would be produced in the next six months were shown on the catwalk. Mm -hmm. But as Fashion Week became more and more of something that, you know, as a, more of a consumer event that things people followed yeah. immediately it became that lag between the clothes being shown and the clothes being available became untenable because mm-hmm. people began to want it kind of right now and th- and that's what we, we're kind of getting this sort of collapse in terms of things being shown and things being made and things being sold and I was wondering is that same do you get the same sense you know the big companies usually have a very long turnaround time you know you launch uh, you have the launch pad which is uh, you know salone del mobile euroluce you know all these kind of uh, fairs when you say it's the launch pad is this things that are going to be produced or is yes it, it's a test as well is it te- so what's the test can you the explain test the, is, of the first test? is they they use it as a pad to see and test the reaction of uh, of people and and see uh, how much attention they uh, gather. And if something gets a lot of criticism or doesn't get any attention, there is a high chance that it might not be produced. Mm -hmm. But usually companies have a policy that 95% of the stuff that they decide to show in Milan will be produced Mm -hmm. and will be available for sale. Has that changed? I mean, do you think it was used more as a test before there was so much attention? I mean, has the attention meant that people can use it less speculatively? I think there's never been a model that existed in that. I think it's a kind of a, it's very much relies on the time, I mm. think, that uh, that event is happening. I mean, I think there's more, I would say, uh, healthy moments mm-hmm. uh, within a company, uh, in the history of a company, and there is less healthy moments mm-hmm. and I think it, it's more got to do with that rather than trends I would right. say as to how much actually is produced and how much is launched because in this day and age everybody can be a brand because a lot of the companies a lot of the brands don't actually produce but they use factories to mm-hmm. produce for them they mm-hmm. just do the distribution that's mm-hmm. what they did I mean mm-hmm. you know you see all these companies that have operated in the same way and thrive with that model. You don't have factories specializing in one specific skill or craft or you know technique or whatever, and therefore you build a portfolio of products around that specialist skill. But you know you can produce anything. You can be a lighting brand and then suddenly decide to start producing furniture. So when I first went to Milan, just an observer, I was just overwhelmed. I absolutely loved it. It was so exciting. And I think we went back the following year and I was really disappointed by how much was repetition. It was a real, and in a sense, it kind of happens almost too often, doesn't it? I mean, you, you're lucky that Euroluce happens every two years because maybe that's a better rhythm, in fact. Yeah, because it's every a saturated market. Yeah. At the end of the day, there's only that many ideas that mm-hmm. can come out. And I'm sure you know that with the art world. Yeah. I mean, it's the same. And what happens is that there's all these trends as well that unfortunately sad to talk about design with trends because mm-hmm. I thought that design is above mm-hmm. trends. But I think... Nothing is beyond trends in these day and age. I mean, you could sort of make trends more respectable and just say that's like, it's just like the cultural, somehow it's the cultural mood. You know, that's where we, that's where we're at. 
which is not necessarily a superficial thing. If yeah. collectively we're at yeah. a certain place, is that a yeah? No, <laughs> absolutely, thing? absolutely. But I, because I have a different approach to design, mm. what ideally I want to see design as, you know, I want to see it more as a something that acquires sort of a timeless mm. uh, association to it you know, that survives time somehow. So with Fashion Week, you know, there's so many Fashion Weeks now. I think there's, you know, men's, women's, resort, couture, and it's almost becomes kind of constant. And you think, actually, rather than sort of speeding up the rate of events, we would be much better slowing mm. them Yes, yeah. no, them absolutely. Down. But maybe it's like the kind of wheels of a speeding bicycle. When it goes to a certain rate, it appears still. Yeah. And I feel that's kind of where we're getting, in a sense. Yeah. And design is no yeah. different. Yeah. Design is no different because, as you say, the, there's the one main fair, but there's so many other fairs and there's so many design weeks that happen internationally, you know, and especially during the from September until basically throughout the year. And there's overlap from one design week to another design week. And usually all these design weeks are built around a commercial fair. But how many fairs could there be and how many launch pads could there be? And, you know, there's not that many products that you can actually keep on yeah. presenting over and repeating yourself in a different. It's like repackaging something and wanting to show it yet again, yet another time. And, you know, do you it, feel it just obliged gets... to do something new for every Malaya? Every Euro Luce? Yeah, um, I would say yes, because... Two years' time frame is a healthy time frame mm -hmm. to come up with, you know, mm -hmm. some decent new products. Mm -hmm. But I never felt the pressure to do it. If a product is not ready for me to be launched, then it shouldn't be launched. It mm -hmm. shouldn't be forced to be launched. You're listening to Thought Starters with lighting designer Michael Anastasiadas in conversation with design journalist and curator Emily King. I mean, if I look back through the work you've done under your own brand, you know, there's definitely kind of themes, you know, aesthetic themes. I can see it kind of following, you know, there's the idea of balance. There is a certain palette of materials, you know. Could you imagine just completely leaving that behind and making a product that seems very anomalous? Or would that be actually difficult? Then? Well, it's challenging because um, I think this year, I think I've, I've taken a different turn mm -hmm. in terms of my approach because I, I find myself being, let's say, followed mm -hmm. by a lot of kind of new uh, designers and uh, all of a sudden, uh, you, you find the designs that you've produced for 10, 15 years uh, have become part of a trend. You know, I'm not saying that I set that trend up, mm. but I happen to find myself in it. I think you're being overly moment. modest. I mean, it's part, more than part of the trend. You're straightforwardly copied left, right and center. Yeah, in whatever <laughs> way you want to put it yeah. across. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I see this as an interesting thing that is happening and suddenly you see this saturation mm -hmm. and, and you acknowledge this saturation but you want to move on from there and I think this year is quite critical for me because I've made a conscious step and saying I will still keep maintain and produce the stuff that I produce to date and still have them out commercially because I really believe in them and they've been good so far but 
I need to evolve. Mm. I need to move on. I need to look for new. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, in this language. case, there's definitely an analogy with Fantastic Man in that mm. had such an enormous impact on the fashion industry that like just about every fashion magazine and branding exercise shifted in its direction. Mm. And that's really difficult because it's, it is so much the essence of what the founders are. It's so much the essence of Jop and Kertar. So it's mm. very hard for them to leave it behind because it's them. You know, it's not the people who's, who've copied mm. it, but it is them. Yeah. So, and it's it's been it's quite painful. Yeah, absolutely. Apartamento yeah. is the same. I yeah. Guess, you know, yeah, it's had a huge uh, influence. Yeah. yeah. We were talking about. I mean, you mentioned your email, the idea of IKEA stealing things. I mean, it's not IKEA. I've been to people's houses where I know they've even talked to you about lighting installations, and then they've decided to do sort of ersatz versions of no, Anastasiades. I mean, we had that, and it's uh, so shocking. But the other thing is, these are people who cultured art collecting people and I, I was trying to think of an analogy you know if they wanted a sassnel would they get someone to paint something sassnel-esque because mm. they couldn't afford the real thing no they wouldn't and it's interesting people have a different approach to design mm. that they're not well it's a big subject uh, i think yeah. copying is a big uh, mm. big subject and uh, you know i'm very sensitive to it but then there is a certain point that as a designer, you shouldn't allow yourself to be consumed by it. Mm. It's annoying. It's very annoying. But I, I've tried to see it in a different way. I think the most annoying thing for me when I see copies of my work, at least because I have to speak from a personal point of view, is that you see the ugly side of yourself. <laughs> and this mm. is the best I can describe it. Mm. So it's like you see the things that everything that could go wrong is there. And suddenly you see the product that you never designed and you see the wrong direction that it could go towards. And this is what you don't like. It's mm -hmm. like seeing yourself as yourself in the mirror and say, I don't like this ugly side of myself. And that's the most annoying yeah. thing. And we were talking about some IKEA earlier. I mean, mm -hmm. have you been copied by IKEA so no, that? I mean, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm lucky enough, but, you know, I have to assure you that I've been subtly copied by a lot of other people yeah. but um, and a lot of other companies. I mean, I was wondering if there's a hierarchy of copy. I mean, would it almost be less annoying to be copied yeah. by IKEA because it's just a completely different market than yeah. by sort of some... Yeah. It is. It yeah. is a completely different market. And, you know, it wouldn't be long when you start looking at products, you know, within IKEA or similar scale sort of companies that are clever enough to subtly change something that you have no, not even a case to fight against. And, and that's actually the saddest uh, part of the story. But IKEA trying to re, let's say, establish their image or correct their image over copying by actually doing ventures now with designers and, and deals and and, and trying to present themselves as a design-conscious mm -hmm. uh, brand, a design-conscious Do you believe company. them? Are you, are you convinced? Of course, uh, you know, it's, you have to be always very cautious about mm. what you believe. Mm -hmm. um, it's a massive industry, and um, at the end of the day, what is actually ethical or not mm. is a big, But they potentially uh, can have a huge effect, you know, if they start using recyclable materials or kind of very, you know... But it's all marketing the, at the well, end yes. of the day. Yes. It's all part of the bigger machine. Mm. You mm -hmm. know, it's there for a reason. Um, but then in some ways, if, if consumers get more alert, you know, to look at the, sun, the sunny side of the story to these things, then surely it's got to... Then the marketing people have to work towards what the consumers Absolutely. want. So Absolutely. They have to sense. continuously correct yeah. 
as the but I guess people. as a consumer it's up to us to be alert to what's real and what's yeah, a but total do you really want fakery. to end up being a design activist and be consumed by it yes <laughs> well I guess we've all got to be activists now in some way I mean, absolutely but I believe that yeah. the, the press is very responsible for mm. that you know they have mm. to be more critical in my view and they should at least the least thing they should do is to uh, stop celebrating mm. you know uh, copies stop mm. celebrating fake mm. uh, well, designs yeah. and I think this is the because everybody is so thirsty for new mm. things and new stories to be the first one mm. Sometimes they are not really aware well, of what they're des- doing. I mean, design press is usually, as is fashion press, yeah. just rewritten press releases, which is very yeah. disappointing, yeah. I think. I mean, there's not a lot of really scrupulous. Yeah. I think the online magazines are probably better. Yeah. I mean, I would be. Yeah. I was, was always interested in what is the difference between art press and design mm. press, because I always felt that uh, art press was more critical. It is critical. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always found that whenever I've done anything design... I've been really disappointed that all the press I get is preview press and it's all basically a rewrite of yeah. my press release. So it's all, which is kind of great because it's mm. my words, but actually if you, and maybe I, you should be careful what you wish for, but I've always kind of craved an actual review where mm. someone looks at what I've done and assesses it and that has never happened. Even when I've done, you know, exhibitions in museums, I've never had that review and I think it, it is mm. lacking. And there are very few people, you know, Alice Rawson was writing critically about design yeah. and that column's gone and there are very few such columns in the mainstream mm. press. It's a shame. Yeah, no, there absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And, and, and I wish there were more people like you and mm. Alice and, mm. you know, but it's mm. uh, very, very, very uh, few people mm. around. That it's just con- there that treated as, con- it's a consumer, yeah. it's treated as absolutely. a consumer item absolutely. in any other way. Yeah. Being optimistic about, uh, you know, everything that is going on around you. I mean, you have to become immune, you know, to uh, all these events. And I think in this day and age that we live in, it's very, very difficult, I think. Um, you know, as an as a designer, um, and I want to kind of speak more uh, in general terms as a creative, you are here to operate in a certain sort of manner and meaning that uh, you try to remain as true to what you believe in as possible. And you evolve over the years uh, through the production or the creation of your works. And I think that's that's the model that I can relate to. And, and obviously, you, have, you will be influenced by everything else that is going on around you, you know, whether that is sort of a political climate or a different kind of... I mean, life for designers has really changed, hasn't it? Because they, designers... Are, very few designers can live on their royalties now. I mean, in the old days, they, they used to work for big they, companies they and live on their royalties, and that's that, just not, yeah. it's not possible anymore. Yeah. So designers are having to find different ways of doing things. And I guess, you know, I came up with your generation of designers who had to find the different methods. Yeah. And well, I found a different model because what, that yeah. was the only way that I could actually survive as, mm. a, as a designer uh, is actually you know uh, producing my own work and that's Mm. what actually funds the studio at Mm. this moment and funds everything that Mm. I do Uh, I mean it's a it's a big struggle Mm. I mean especially for young designers that want to really work for industry and uh, are striking you know royalty deals with small emerging companies you know they're making absolutely peanuts nothing Mm. you know really nothing 
it's ridiculous if I tell you, you know, mm-hmm. what the royalties of a small scale company are and how mm-hmm. much they pay their designers. So you know, what, would you, what would you advise a young designer to do instead? What can they? Well, they have to be um, first. The, the number one rule is that they really have to believe in what they're doing mm-hmm. because otherwise there's no point doing it. Because design is not a world where you're going to make money. I mean, if you mm. think about it in that way, it's not a profession that guarantees a certain, you know, healthy living. So um, unless you're passionate about what it is that you're doing and unless you're really, uh, you need to acknowledge the fact that it could be like an extremely long journey, mm-hmm. then there's no point. Mm. But I wonder what, what is the alternative model? Is it to... Do bespoke stuff? Is it start? Is it start your own brand? Is it to? I mean, how could? I guess you just have to cobble it together out of lots of. Well, different there's no, things. there's no real answer to yeah. that. I mean, a lot of people try to find and strike a balance. You know, be, becoming sometimes supporting uh, an extra income by becoming, you know, academics starting to teach maybe mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. all these institutions, mm-hmm. or doing freelance work for other designers while at the same time they try to make a career with their own products. Some of them, uh, you know, start the model that I have in a sense of uh, going into self-production. Mm. But it's it's a tough one, you know. Mm. It's a very tough one to break. And I wonder if, I mean, Milan almost, it's a sort of slight problem in terms of, because the model is no longer the big companies and the kind of new products, which is really what Milan was established for. It's much more individual people doing sustained kind of threads of work over years mm. and years. And so mm. in a sense, it's not really very suited probably mm. to these new design No, not models. at all. But yeah. design, uh, Milan has always been uh, a closed circuit. Mm. And it's not an open circuit. Mm. For as democratic as, you know, they want to make it appear with mm. all these different platforms like Salone Satellite, mm. which is this independent mm. sort of exhibition with young and emerging designers and mm. young talent all these awards, all these competitions that are there. It's, um, it's, it's unfortunately not enough mm. to make it very democratic. Mm. You know, young designers do struggle. And, you know, if they really want to expose and e- exhibit something, you know, in, in these environments, it's really, really mm. tough. I think the only lucky thing that this generation has is social media. Mm. Because at least they get their product out and known. Uh, quite mo- mobile as well. I just, do you remember, did you know Fabian Capello? Just when I was in, he's moved to Mexico mm-hmm. and from having a very difficult time in London, suddenly yeah. he's having a much more exciting time in Mexico. Yeah. Teaching Guadalajara, working on sort of installations for yeah. social housing because projects. Because now I think, uh, kind of you know, the, the geographical location used to be far more important than yeah. it is now, mm. uh, you know. Uh, if you were a designer in the 90s yeah, that was outside, you know, London, mm-hmm. uh, you would have a hard time mm. uh, to build a name. So being in a big city helped at that mm-hmm. time. And I think now people are much more open to different uh, mm-hmm. design hubs, as I would call them. Yeah, which I guess is also a product of social media in a yeah. sense. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and the thirst for something exotic and yeah. new. That was lighting designer Michael Anastasiadis in conversation with design journalist and curator Emily King. This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place, 
Produced by David Michon and recorded and edited by Claire Urban and Claire Crofton. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram with the handle at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. Subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, give us a rating, and write us a comment. It really helps. Our next episode will be live tomorrow where we'll hear from Holly Hay, photo editor at Another Magazine, and set designer Robert Story. Thank you.